0: Are you talking shift? We are. It's time for the We're Talking Shift podcast. Now, now, now. Here to talk shift, Lori Bischoff. We're talking shift.
1: Hey, everybody! Thank you, thank you for tuning back into another episode of We're Talking Shift, the podcast where we talk a lot of shift, and that's because when we feel stuck, if it's time to level up, rise to a challenge, make a health shift, a relationship shift, any kind of meaningful, effective change in our life, the first thing that we have to shift is our thinking. That, my friends, is the antidote to feeling stuck. Now, before I tell you about today's guests, I have a favor to ask. If you are loving all the great info being shared with you on this podcast and you find value in it, I would love it if you would take a minute to rate it and write a little review for me. Those reviews help others decide to press play to hear all this good shift for themselves. And of course, it helps me out too. And to show my gratitude in return, I will send you a copy of my ebook, The Foodprint Plan, your blueprint for creating a healthy eating lifestyle. Just take a screenshot of the review that you post on iTunes, send it to me through direct message on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, and I will be delighted to gift you the $20 ebook as a thank you when you leave the review. Now on to today's show. In recognition of Mental Health Awareness Week, I thought it would be a good idea to explore some aspects of this issue with two people who have had their own serious mental health struggles. They both have stories that many people will be able to relate to either personally or through knowing of somebody in similar circumstances. They're both very passionate about removing the stigma around mental health through the sharing of their stories and their journeys of making their way from the depths of despair to a whole new level of mental wellness. They're also going to be sharing some great tips and advice that can be really helpful for you or someone that you know who may be struggling. So let me tell you first a little bit about Amanda Webster. After years of therapy, prescriptions, journaling, yoga, and self-help books, Amanda still struggled with unmanageable depression and she masked it with drugs and alcohol and self-harm. But with a careful combination of nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle changes, she overcame depression on her own terms. Now, as a mind-body wellness coach, Amanda helps others make the changes that are necessary to improve their mental and physical health. Now, I also have the pleasure of having Jay Schiffman joining us today. By the time... Jay had reached his early 20s. He found himself daily taking more than the estimated lethal dosage of one drug and abusing many others. He was living with a full-blown addiction to prescription pills. At 23, after two suicide attempts, an overdose, and time spent at an inpatient hospital and a rehab facility, he decided enough was enough, and he made the decision to withdraw from all of his prescription meds. Jay became an addiction and mental health speaker, writer, consultant, coach, and advocate. He is also the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Ten years in recovery, Jay works with those ready to choose the next step in their mental health journey. So, Jay and Amanda, I welcome you both to We're Talking Shift.
2: Thank you so much for having us. It's really an honor to be here with you and with Jay. You both have such amazing energy and such amazing uh, stories. It's just really an honor to be here.
1: Thank you. I I echo
0: that 100%. Laurie. thank you so much for having us. And always good to be back with Amanda, who is an early guest on my podcast. So happy Mental Health Month to you both and uh, excited to be here. Cheers. Wonderful.
1: <laughs> I'm really happy that you both had the time to uh hang out with me and talk about this today. It's a huge huge issue as you know better than I do and it seems to be growing by by the month. Um I think there's you know this is a massive topic and mental health covers a lot of different areas and of course we're not going to be able to dive into each and every one of those um you know related areas but we're going to talk about the things that that you guys have experienced and um and i think the best place to start really you have very compelling stories so if you don't mind i mean i just gave a little tidbit in the in the beginning but amanda if you don't mind um if you want to share just a little bit more about your story and kind of where you found yourself um maybe on the, on the brink of something and and then started to make your way back and then we'll uh, have jay share his and we'll go from there yeah you you touched a little bit on it
2: that i had struggled with depression and anxiety for a very long time i think it was triggered mostly by the death of my mother i was in my early 20s in 2007 when i lost my mom i would lost my dad two years prior and at that point i got into a relationship that wasn't really healthy to try and mask that grief i started dabbling in drugs and i'd done I'd I'd done some in the past, but this was definitely a new ball game, um, and self-harming, and doing really whatever I could do just to get by, just to survive day to day. And it kind of went on and off for a couple of years. I never really found any level of management per se. There were just some days that were less awful than other days, there was no real happiness, there was no real um, life to be lived, so to speak, but I really broke in 2017. That was my, my real breaking point. I had gotten out of that relationship. I had gotten into another relationship that just wasn't really serving me, and I had a lot going on in my life in 2017. I'd been wrongfully accused of a DUI. i got gotten sued by one of my clients. I got in a car accident, and this was all within a two-week span, and mm-hmm. I had been listening to a lot of Linkin Park at the time, because that's kind of how I coped with my, with my depression through the years, um, since my teen years or at least tried to cope. I think that's probably my only healthy coping mechanism. And after all these events happened, and I'm trying to listen to this, trying to to find some kind of solace, the lead singer took his life. And that just spiraled me out of control. It was just my Mm -hmm. catalyst to, I think in some ways, face the things that I hadn't faced. I hadn't faced losing my parents. I hadn't faced being sexually assaulted when I was 16. I'd masked it. I'd either masked it through this music or I'd masked it through the drugs and the self-harm, and I never really dealt with any of it. And Mm -hmm. a few months later, I found myself on a ledge in a Canadian hotel room. Um, And even though I did get clean prior to that, and I did stop self-harming, I had gotten to a point where I didn't know what to do. Like at this point, now I don't even have the drugs. Now I don't even have any vices. And I found myself on this ledge just completely ready to end it. I was done. I didn't know what else to do. I felt like I'd tried everything and I just couldn't take the pain anymore. And Mm -hmm. that was my breaking point. Um, A saw in the play at the right place at the right time was my breaking point to realize that I needed to make changes, that I really needed to do something because while I thought I was doing everything. I I know now that I wasn't being honest with myself.
1: Sure. So it sounds like um, even though you were trying to cope in, in obviously harmful ways, uh, but really the root of the the problem was the unresolved. Sounds like a lot of unresolved trauma and grief that just at it, you know, started from a very young age and just sort of kept piling up.
2: Yeah, that was, that's the, pretty good summary of it. And like I said, there were a few things I did in there to try and take care of myself. Like I I'd do a yoga class or I listen to this music that made me feel validated, but at the end of the day, I wasn't confronting the real problems. No matter what I did, whether it was good or bad, I just wasn't confronting the actual issues and I was still making choices that weren't serving me at all.
1: Sure. What do you think? Um, what do you think caused you, what went through your mind when you're standing on the ledge you know, of a hotel room ready to, ready to jump. What, what happened in your mind that you didn't, what changed?
2: Well, like I said, this song came on literally right in that second, just outside my hotel room door Uh, in a, in a French speaking province in another country, it happened to be a Linkin Park song. And that was kind of my sign My mom always told me, never ignore the signs. Don't ignore the signs. When the universe sends you a sign, don't ignore it. And I just, with all of my being new, I wasn't meant to jump. And it's not like I wanted to die in the first place. I wasn't there because I didn't want to live. I was there because I didn't want to hurt. And in my mind, I thought this is what was best for everyone. I thought that my son and my husband and my friends would be better off if Mm -hmm. I made this choice.
1: Right. Well, that's a... Very, very scary place to be. And I just got chills when you said it was a Linkin Park song that came on outside the door when that was, you know, one of your things that you, one of your kind of in a way uh, like a like a life raft for you.
2: Yeah, um, you're telling me. I, I freaked out. I thought I was hallucinating at the time. I'm just standing there. I think I only stepped out and went to the door to make sure it was real because I thought it wasn't real. I thought I was hallucinating it. But, yeah, it was the surviving singer that helped me m- helped motivate me when I met him uh, several months prior to that to stop doing drugs and stop self-harming and stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it really they really had been my security blanket or like you said my life raft through the years. So just for that song to come on at that time was just yeah. I-, I couldn't consider it coincidence, even though I don't know what I believe in or necessarily that I believe in some all-knowing, all-powerful force. I just couldn't believe it was coincidence. And in my heart I knew it was my sign that I had to be yeah. fighting.
1: Yeah, that sure sounds like divine intervention to me. If that's not yeah. what, if that's not divine intervention, I don't know what is. That's amazing. Um and I'm so glad you're here today talking with us about it. Um, Thank you. Jay. Yeah, absolutely. Jay, now you um you have a a really different story about how you got to the place where you were in such, you know, such despair that you wanted to take your own life. Can you tell us more about how you ended up on that path?
0: Definitely. Excuse me. So (laughs) you you said it correctly. It's a very different path. I, uh, everything started for me when I was a preteen, I was prescribed, uh, prescriptions for ADHD treatment and this was in the late nineties when this was sort of becoming all the, the rage. Yeah. And not long, a couple, maybe five years later, I was told by my longtime therapist that I was showing signs of a mood disorder, which we, we now know 20 years later, you know, this is what these drugs can do to the brain.
1: Yeah.
0: But to, to put a very long story short, uh, the the prescriptions that i was taking for my adhd were added to along the way by more and more prescriptions until in my early 20s i was taking uh 5 to 6 different drugs every day uh as you said in my intro one of them i was taking over the lethal dosage or what they believed to be a lethal dosage um and and it wasn't it was a very bad situation i was wildly depressed I I was spending most of my time doing very little besides sitting on my couch and for me getting to avoid withdrawals for a day was a was a good day Mm -hmm. Uh, if I didn't spend my morning curled around my my toilet on my bathroom floor that was a good day and uh, the summer of 2009 when I was 23 was the summer that I gave up. And intentionally, uh, while what I thought was going to be a lethal dosage, I instead ended up being enough to, to cause an overdose. But I called a friend and told her what I was doing. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm being loaded in the backseat of a police car. And the next day I came to, uh, I have this very clear memory of consciousness rushing back towards me. And I was in a lockdown unit at a at a hospital outside of Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: Hmm. Wow. Did you? I mean, when you became conscious, um, were you? Do you remember what your first thoughts were? Was I mean? Were you like disappointed, or were you glad that that you didn't succeed? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I don't remember an emotion, uh, but I do remember my first thought, and and it is. Look, sometimes the movies get it right. My first thought was, where the hell am I? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because I was sitting across from somebody getting, you know, uh, like checked into this this lockdown unit. And the last thing I remember, I was being put in the back of a cop car and I thought I was going to die that night. Mm
1: -hmm. So I had
0: no idea what was going on. And that was a very scary thought.
1: Sure. Eventually, when your mind cleared a little bit, were you, how did you feel then? Were you thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe this is good. I'm I'm kind of glad I was not successful in my attempt and maybe now I can get help. Or did you have other thoughts? Do you call?
0: You know, at that time, I was still very sick. Uh, the, The turning point for me was not in that lockdown center, but when I was sent to a long-term care facility in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And there I was lucky enough to meet wonderful people with both issues of mental health and substance use disorders. And I started to realize that that second category, what they were going through, more resembled what I was going through. And it was there that I made the choice to try to get off of all of these drugs and I really finally came to the realization that there was a possibility that this this idea that I had clung to for so long that I was just uh, I just had a debilitating mental illness was not the case, and uh, you know it was it was the first time in my adult life that I had ever gone. I think I'm going to trust myself on this one, and I'm glad that I did.
1: Yeah, uh, because. I mean, I would imagine that when you came to that realization, and then, of course, especially after you were finding success in, you know, getting yourself um, to a place of of wellness, you know, mental wellness, that it, I can't imagine there wouldn't be some resentment that you may have had at one time or still have, or maybe you, you're, you know, you were over that, but the doctors um, that put you on this path, basically, I mean, you were a child, right? You you were a kid, and so it's not like you chose it. You were guided in that direction. You were told you need these drugs because you're not mentally well. Basically, you have an issue, you have a condition, and this is this is what you have to do now. Do you? I mean, what are your thoughts about that now, and what were they when you first? you know, decided to take matters into your own hand and get off of all of this stuff. I'd be furious.
0: (laughs) Well, Laura, I'm really glad that you asked that. I I want to say that I truly believe that there are many people for whom these drugs are lifesavers. And we are living through a time where a lot of research and development is ongoing and it's going to be a time that eventually they look back on as sort of a great awakening in the, the field of mental health. We're not doing enough, but we're at least moving in the right direction. Now, when I first got into recovery, I was angry. I was uh, I was scared and I did not trust a therapist for almost five years. I didn't even go see one. I refused. and And I eventually came to terms with what had happened and it was through my work that that became the case. I I now see it as, as I like to say, the first line of my bio and the last line of my obituary is that I'm 10 years in recovery. And I I fully embraced that. You are correct, I did not choose it, but after a period of time, I came to the realization that being angry about this experience not only did nothing but it it held me back and to embrace what happened to me would unlock the ability to then use it as a positive
1: yeah I get that. And I'm I'm really glad you said that because I know that knowing myself, I would probably feel that way too. I'd I'd probably be furious and angry at first, obviously. And you have every right to be, but as you, you know, become well and more balanced and you see the, the, the bigger picture and you see how it can lead you to be, um, end up in a place where you can help other people because of it. It, uh, it, it allows you to, Forgive and and know that some people, you know, doctors included, are, are well intentioned, but but not always do we have um, the best, you know, results from those intentions. So it's interesting, though. What I find so interesting that is that you guys, you Jay and Amanda, have um, different causes for your your struggles, and then different. You know, different things happen, different paths, but you ended up basically in the same place, meaning you wanted to take your own lives. And then you also were two people that ended up deciding even after you tried a lot of things with uh, with help uh, and assistance, but you ended up really taking things into your own hands and. In doing it your way, and I so I applaud you for that. And I just find it really interesting, given that your the, you know your histories were so different. Um, so there's there's more than one way to get to get around this. And I think that it's good for people to know that there's a lot you can do on your own with the choices that you make and the commitments you make to yourself. Um, you know, even if you don't have the benefit um, or the help that other people may have. So, I guess my next question, and I'll throw this back over to you, Amanda, to start with. Um, who was around you in these last couple of years, and how how did the people or the person that was closest to you, how did they cope or deal with or know even the you know the depths of this and how serious it was? How does that work with somebody that's close to you? Do they know how serious it is and, and what your pain and struggles are? Are they, you know, were, was the person in your life or people in your life able to help you or was it something that was kind of hidden from them as well?
2: The number one response I got when I decided to start talking about my struggles with the people I care about, my friends, and the ones that I loved were I had no idea because, well, yes, I always struggled with some level of anxiety or depression, I feel like that kind of became the norm for the people close to me. So when I had a genuine crisis, when it really blew up the way it did and I really started spiraling downward, it didn't really become as evident to them because I already had that predisposition to have um, these these issues and kind of some of these signs that that people would normally look for. Nobody really thought it was anything serious. Nobody thought that... It could be a real possibility that I would take my life or that I would fall into a serious drug addiction. For me, it was cocaine that I was using just to have a break for a minute from the immense amount of, of depression and and pain that I was going through. There were a couple people um, that were in my life or that are in my life that I talked to. and. The one she really seemed to understand because she went through similar struggles. She'd also been sexually assaulted. She'd went and out of drug addiction. She struggled herself with depression and anxiety. And she was, for the most part, understanding. And she was the one I kind of bonded to the most through that time because I realized really quickly when I started noticing that I was going through the stages of grief over Chester, I realized really quickly that saying anything to anyone was going to make me sound insane, or at least that's what I believed, because here I am grieving this person I've never met. And I didn't want to talk to anyone about that, so I I, I did talk to my one close friend, and she was very understanding and supportive. But... As far as most other people, like my partner, had no clue what to do. He didn't He'd never experienced this. He'd never been with anybody that had experienced this. So this was an all new ball game to him. And when you're in the throes of depression, like I, I know then I'm sitting there going, "You don't love me because you're not helping me." When really I can look back now from my current perspective and say it had nothing to do with the fact that they didn't love me, it's that we are not equipped. We're not trained on how to help someone in a mental health crisis or when they're struggling with symptoms of depression or even really how to recognize those symptoms of depression. And I finally came to a point where I forgave them for not showing up in the way that I wanted them to because I had this Mm -hmm. very specific set of expectations and because they didn't meet that set of expectations in my dark mind at the time, I saw them as the enemy, and I started pushing them further and further away. And I think one of the biggest things that people don't realize is depression doesn't, Well, I guess this is actually a really huge misconception of depression, is depression doesn't have a face. You know, you you don't have to look depressed. You don't have to be crying to have um, depression. Mm -hmm. And... So like for everybody else it wasn't really recognizable and for him like he just thought oh well she's she's doing okay. He didn't know mm-hmm. about the drugs really and yeah. In his eyes okay, well it's not that bad. She's just she's just being moody, moody but right. I'd get very angry and push him away. I'd get very upset um and lash out because I didn't know what else to do. I was in so much pain. I didn't know what else to do because again here in my mind is this person that I'm trying to talk to I'm trying to open up to and I'm feeling rejected so it it was very difficult to be able to reach out from there you know to anyone else when the person Mm -hmm. that I trusted the person that's closest to me
1: doesn't seem to get it yeah that makes sense so so what about you Jay same same question um who was in your life um and did they know what you were going through
0: Well, that's a really wonderful question. And unfortunately, uh, one of the things that people who struggle with addiction are just proficient at is burning bridges. And my experience was absolutely no different. Mm. So when I was at my worst, I had managed to push away pretty much everybody who was close to me, except for those that I was actively using with. Uh, I, I lived with nine or 10 other people, but while we were friends, we were friends that were brought together by a circumstance and we were not friends on a deeper level, those who truly cared about me were, were alienated by me. Um, and towards the end, uh, most of them really didn't know what was happening in my life and that almost worked in my advantage when I made it through When I came back uh, I had moved away obviously to go to this treatment uh, facility and then to live with my grandparents and go through uh, detox but when I came back and entered recovery I m- most of the people in my life had no idea where I'd gone they just knew that I'd left and so when I started speaking out about my experience and how I was in recovery about 5 years later many of them had no idea. And it was a shock to them that that year plus that I had just up and left was because I was going through these extreme struggles with addiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I
2: think so, that Jay touched on a really important point there about the burning the bridges, because yeah. when, when you feel that, well, at least for me, and I, I've seen this with a lot of my clients and a lot of other people I know are struggling with this, because you feel that shame and you also start writing that narrative that nobody else knows how to deal with it. You start pushing everyone away because you feel like either they're going to judge you or they're going to hate you. Mm. That was my experience.
1: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That is. And I go ahead, Jay.
0: Well, I us just say there's a lot of truth to that. Unfortunately, the stigma of addiction and mental health are very real and that causes people to not reach out. Uh, and that's something that those of us who work in the industry are working very hard to break down or, as we say, end the stigma. Because mm-hmm. if we can simply do that and make these more common conversations and let people know that they are not alone, that we have been where they've been, we can start to make real change.
1: Yeah. Um, and I imagine that the burning bridges c- c- also, can work the other way around too. If you are suffering from from different um, forms of of mental illness um, or suffering, you know, with mental health challenges, um, you know, if you're somebody that's got uh, some behavioral disorders, for example, or anxiety, or or you know, whatever. Could there's a there's a whole host of of things that are all under the umbrella of of you know mental health and mental illnesses. But I'm sure that there are some cases where um the people around the person that's struggling can no longer, they because they don't know how to help, because they don't know how to cope and, and help that person and deal with it, they end up bailing on the relationship and burning the bridge, basically, because they just don't know what to do with you.
2: Yeah, I had that happen quite a few times where I lost friends because of my quote unquote Inability to just go outside and feel better, to just get out and feel better. And that drives me insane when people say that. But it was just, well, you need to, to get your shit together is what I kept being told by people that I'm sure were well-meaning but just didn't know how to go about it. And sure. to be frankly honest, I wasn't a pleasant person to be around. <laughs> like when I was <laughs> in the worst of my depression or when I was coming down off of, of Coke, I just, I was really irritable. I was often just straight out, angry at everyone, Mm -hmm. at myself, at the world, at at everyone. I think the only person who really got any positive attention was my kid because I didn't, I I guess I had enough um, to still have that drive to be a good mother, to still want to be uh, loving and and gentle and patient with my child, but everyone else just got my wrath. And Mm -hmm. I can absolutely see in retrospect why these people ended these, their Our friendship, um and again I, sure. I, I forgive these people for you know not knowing how to deal with it, and I think a lot of the times it comes to one of two things: either they don't know how to deal with it or they try with everything in them and get burned out because yeah. they they don't know how to take care of themselves while they're they're trying to take care of this other person. so yeah, I think that it definitely affects you know every every sure. aspect of your life, especially the relationships of the people close to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what, um, what are some of the worst things when you're in the throes of, of this, you know, struggle and depression and, um, and addiction in this case, what are some of the worst things that people can say to you or do when you are in this state? you just mentioned one, you said a lot of times you'd hear, you know, you just need to get your shit together. So are there other things, Amanda? And then Jay, you can respond to, um, just so that people out there know, okay, if, if you suspect somebody that's close to you that they might be going through this, here's what not to say. So let's let them know. Oh my
2: gosh, there's so many, but really the biggest ones are any, 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 any form of trying to shame them like if you're trying to make them feel bad well you just need to quit that drug is bad for you or the drinking is bad for you or self-harming is bad for you we know that we know it's bad Mm -hmm. and we're not doing it because we think it's good for us we're doing it because it's the only coping mechanism we have so I think any any version of telling Mm -hmm. someone how bad what they're doing is instead you can say I'm really worried I really care about you and I really want to help you and I'm here you know, when you when you want to talk about it. And that's the other thing is trying to shame someone and bully someone into compliance. is never going to get them to listen to you. I mean, it, there are people all the time that would tell me, well, you just, you need to stop this crap because it's bad for you and you're gonna lose your kid and you're gonna do, this. and they, they, they try to scare me out of, out of the mm-hmm. drugs or out of, you know, my depression. They're trying to scare me out of being afraid, I guess, because I was already afraid enough. But people are always trying to use these things to kind of in a way guilt trip me. Like, why don't you think about your child? I am thinking about my child. That's why I'm doing these things because in my distorted uh, perspective at the time, I was doing what I could to try and be the best mom to try and survive really was what it was so that I could still be a good mom to my child. So I think judging someone and trying to assume where they're at and what they're feeling and what they're thinking trying to tell someone that they you know that they have to do a certain thing like you have to go get treatment you have to stop doing the drugs you have to trying to force it upon them is going to make them push away from you if if you, if yeah. you don't become a safe person for them then they're never going to turn to you and, and that just shuts off one more avenue for them to get help when they're ready and i'm not mm-hmm. saying don't encourage people to get help that's not what i'm saying at all i'm saying that When you don't know what else to do or you don't know what else to say, be gentle and compassionate because these people are already hurting enough. I know that the the last thing in the world I wanted to hear was, well, your son's suffering or you're going to lose your kid or you're going to die or you're going to overdose. I'd already overdosed multiple times. It didn't matter in my mind. I just didn't make the connection. I just needed someone to love me through it. I needed someone, yes, maybe a little bit of tough love, but I don't respond well to that. I don't respond well when people try the tough love approach. I just need someone to say, I love you and I care about you. What can I do to help you through this? What do you need from me to get through this? How can I,
1: you know, support you yeah. during this time? Excellent. What about you, Jay?
0: Well, Amanda said something I think that's incredibly important, and that is that it needs to come from a place of empathy and, and not in any way anger or exasperation. Not, I, I think she touched on a lot of important ones. The only one that I, I want to add is, uh, this isn't my experience. This is a client I was working with not long ago. And she was just beside herself at at her son who continued to use. And she said, you know, uh, it's almost like he just doesn't care about what I want anymore. And yeah. I said to her, I, I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this, but he, he doesn't. This isn't about you. This is about him. And she had been spending so much time trying to help her son understand this is what I want for you. This is what I want for you. That she had never stopped to actually listen to him about what he was going through. Now, I can't tell you that 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 had an impact on her. I've never been the mom in that relationship. I've only been the son. But I can tell you that if you go into that conversation with your son or daughter or whoever that's struggling and you tell them this is how uh, i feel about this mm-hmm. i know we see that on on tv and in movies and you know let me tell you how it's affecting me the person who's struggling i mean they may care they may feel horrible about it but not enough to overcome what they're going through do mm-hmm. you need to listen to them
1: that makes sense. it probably has almost the opposite effect that that the intended, you know, uh, person. That's in. You know, they're they're t- saying this because they they're hoping it's going to help. They're hoping it's going to turn them, but instead, the opposite effect would be they just probably feel worse or guilty or anything that's you know not what they're looking for.
0: That's
2: right. Yes. Yeah, nothing positive ever comes from trying to bully someone into compliance or trying to push your own narrative on them. I feel like in those cases, you know, the the parent obviously or child or whatever is, is afraid for the person that they love. And that's completely understandable that they're, you know, afraid of where this is going to go. But if you're not going to be the person that they can turn to, they might not have anywhere else to go. So it's really mm-hmm. important of how you approach it to make sure that you're a safe person for
1: them. Yeah. That's a, that's really important. I'm so glad that you guys have said that a couple of times here being that safe person where they feel like they're not going to be they're not going to be shamed, they're not going to be judged, they're not going to have to worry about your feelings cuz they can't hardly even manage their own. So
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Got it. Got it. So how uh, if If you have some, some tips, how can we help those that are close to us and that see us frequently or live, live in the same home? um, How do you help them recognize when to show up and say, you know, what are they looking for? How do they know when it's time for them to say, you know, I sense that there's some serious things going on with you and. How can I help? You know, when, what should they be looking for? Are there red flags or is it just so subtle? Like you said, you guys both earlier, you know, it's easy to mask it and not let anybody around you know what's really going on. So are there any clues that people could look for? I became kind of the
2: queen of of masking things, but even so there are very subtle things, you know, that will start coming out, because no matter how many masks you put on, they're going to start to crack after a while. And everybody's different. I'm not saying that there's one solid way to know, but I've kind of noticed with myself and with others that I've helped through this experience. But there's kind of two types of personalities. There's the people that will recluse. They'll get quiet. They're not as involved in conversation. They just they, they don't really seem to have much interest in anything, not, let alone um, their, their own hobbies and stuff, but they don't really seem as invested in conversation. They don't really want to uh, interact with you as much. There's those um, There's those people, and then there's the people like me, that just start to get really uncharacteristically angry and defensive about everything. They might get defensive about you going and looking for something in their room. I know I would get very, very defensive if, uh, if my partner was looking for something completely unrelated and I knew he was close to my stash. I'd get very irritable and defensive or I'd get very defensive when um, my behavior was challenged, when it was, well, you're just being grouchy lately. That would make me worse. <laughs> but mm-hmm. just, if, if you notice their personality drastically changing or you notice that they're not really wanting to... Partake in activities that they used to want to partake in frequently or you just see that they're not themselves, really. Yeah, the best way to sure. approach it is to just say, hey, I noticed that you're not really yourself lately and I'm kind of worried. I want to know if there's anything I can do for you. Saying, well, you're being really crabby lately and it's really starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> it's not going to let them open up to you. Sure. But my my number yeah. one thing is to always look for the personality changes, look for changes in their normal patterns of their normal behavior. That's, that's okay. usually the first red flag, and it will start to get more and more uh, noticeable over time, especially if it's ignored. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's why we, we are so good at hiding. I became good at hiding it, just because I got good at avoiding people. I would make excuses to not go do things. and. There's something to be said, you know, for allowing someone space if they just don't want to do something on a certain day and they have to cancel last minute. But when you're repeatedly doing that, that's mm-hmm. probably a red flag that something's going on.
1: That makes sense. Jay, do you have anything that you can add to that?
0: I, I think Amanda said it perfectly. I honestly have nothing to add to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that was actually really good. Um, what about and Jay, I'll start with you on this one. Do you have any, um, myth busters? Let's do, let's call it that myths and misconceptions Ooh. about, yeah, about just, um, you know, just m- mental health, mental illnesses, these challenges, the things that we're talking about in it, you know, whether or not it's related to addiction or some other form of, of struggle, um, is there anything that comes up that's so obviously to you now that you guys have been through this long journey and are in the place that you're at now, what do you think would be some common misconceptions that you might want to let people be aware of?
0: Well, I think that first and foremost, we, we have to keep saying this because it's so incredibly important. There should be no stigma around issues of addiction and mental health. A mm-hmm. I, I, quick story. Not long ago, I was talking to my grandmother and not the one that I lived with and went through withdrawals and but my other grandmother who was very loving and very supportive. And she told me that she's so proud of me for sharing my story. And I thanked her. Obviously, it was very sweet of her. But I said, let me ask you something. Unfortunately, her, her daughter, my aunt is going through uh, cancer treatment at the moment. And I said, uh, are you would you say the same thing to to Margie, my aunt. And she said, uh, no, I I would tell her that I'm proud of her for going through what she's going through. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is it different? And she said, what do you mean? I said, of course, my aunt Margie is so incredibly brave for fighting cancer, but nobody would say she's brave for telling her story about going through cancer. But yet people tell me I'm brave for talking about going through my struggles with addiction and mental health. Mm-hmm. There's a problem with that. The, the two things should be treated no differently. That not saying that, you know, my aunt isn't brave or that I, you know, making it through the other side isn't an incredible story. But tell me why one of those you're brave for doing it. and The other one, you're brave for talking about it. To me, there are a lot of issues around mental health and addiction that we get wrong. But the number one thing, the number one that, that I wish I could change is that we shouldn't talk about it because these are not issues that we should hide they're issues that we should applaud people for fighting their fight
1: yeah that's a, that's a really good point and it makes me wonder why is that why is it looked what what is the perspective you think that people have that that makes it stigmatized
0: well i the, the issues are are similar but different when it comes to addiction to mental health addiction is seen as a choice which is just um it's it's ignorant is the word for that yeah. it it is something that you know I mean my story illustrates that was it a choice for me to trust this therapist 100% I was a child
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I didn't have all the information to make that choice but I did it I made that choice so in that sense, sure, it's a choice. But by the time I was to the point of physical dependence, that choice was not mine. That choice was being made for me by somebody else. And so if you can look at my story and say, oh, well, that's a moral failing. He screwed up there. I would like to have that conversation with you. I would like to hear you out because I struggle with how that could be possibly your opinion. With mental health, it's, I mean, in my opinion, it's because people are scared of it. There is a, there by the grace of God, go I complex of mental health. Mm -hmm. We can't see it. We can't understand it. And so we just recoil.
1: Yeah. That's, that is a terrible, terrible, but very accurate way to look at it. I think, I think you're right on there. It's, it is, you recoil because you're, there's a fear. You don't under, like you said, you don't understand it. You don't know what to do with it. Uh, you'd rather just avoid it and hope that it never becomes part of your life in any way, shape or form, because you have an idea. You have a, probably, I think most people have a very specific idea of what that is, not in the sense of, you know, what's it, what's it called and what are the symptoms, but just that the specific idea that it's something that is uncontrollable and makes you somehow less than. I guess that's the, the way that I feel like I, understand people's perception of, of it. What about I think
0: it? you, you hit that nail on the head. I, I think that there is, um, a, a, again, there's, there is a, a less than quality. And I think that that's a, that's a great way to describe it. Um, but when you get to know people who are struggling with severe issues of mental health, with severe substance use disorders, uh, they are, you know, we are no different than anybody else, other than we're sick. And if we recoiled from every single person that was sick, well, actually, I think you're seeing, you know, not 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 on a much different scale. What's ha- what happens with that right now, and in, mm-hmm. in an international case?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have something you'd like to add to that, Amanda?
2: I. That's that's such a powerful thing, uh, Jay, because. There are a lot of people that will say, well, it was your choice to do that drug. It was your choice to pick up that alcohol. It was your choice to, to make uh, bad decisions that led to the, the mental health issues um, that arose from that. But do we look at somebody that has a heart attack and say, well, that was your choice to eat bad food or somebody that has cancer, well, that was your choice to make these life decisions that might or might not have created, um, you know, this, this cancer. We look at these things as a choice when, yes, there there was the initial choice, but I don't think we always know the ramifications, as J.A. said, and it's so evident in his story. We don't always know really truthfully the ramifications of what can happen with that choice. With that being said, I think a couple of other huge um, misconceptions. I know I, I t- touched on it earlier, but that addiction or depression, either one, have a face that... Someone that does heroin or cocaine, they're going to look a specific way. They're going to be a junkie or whatever other nasty term you want to use. They have this specific look about them. They have this specific um, characteristics about them. There's are CEOs that are addicted to heroin. I was a model, uh, you know, and, and had a, a coke issue, and nobody knew. Nobody would have ever known by looking at me that I was abusing drugs regularly. And frankly, nobody would have known, at me most, known most of the time by looking at me that... I was contemplating suicide sometimes. There were moments where I was laughing and smiling with my friends. And one of the last um, videos of Chester before his passing, if you didn't know what you were looking for when you watched the video, when I watched it, I knew immediately, I saw immediately that he was hurting. But he's laughing with his friends. He's laughing and eating Birdie Bot's jelly beans with his family. And people that didn't know what they were looking for would never know. Mm -hmm. Um, The other big thing On a more personal level, I think that's a big misconception with people that are struggling is that you have no control over mental health uh, struggles. And this is something I believed my whole life, up until a couple of years ago. I mean, I was told by mental health professionals, just like, Jay, they gave me this narrative of, well, You're born with this, and you know you have these struggles, and you have these traumatic experiences, and there's no real way to overcome this. So I, I was also told by people I trusted, being these professionals, that. You know, you you really don't have much control. You're just going to have to take medication to manage the symptoms, and that's probably going to be a lifelong thing. Or, you know, you are predispositioned because of the genetics of your parents because my mom, um, she was an alcoholic previously before meeting my dad, and my um, dad had a few mental health issues. And... Mm -hmm. So I was told, you know, there it's genetics, it's just genetics. Well, genetics might load the gun, but the choices you make are gonna pull the trigger. I mean, there, mm-hmm. yes, you might be predispositioned to having a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder, but that doesn't mean that you can't manage it, that you can't treat it in a multitude of ways and find a happy existence, a happy life, um, despite yeah. like these things, you can overcome for the most part, usually in many cases, you can overcome like these these predispositions,
1: which oh, I guess sure. ties into
2: my last misconception that it's permanent. I was told so many times that this was something I would never overcome; that I'd always, you know, have addiction problems, that I'd always have these mental health problems. And
1: wow, I, you know, Amanda, I do think that, that is true
2: for some people, but it, that was not maybe, my my story. But
1: not. But not most, you know, I mean, I find that to be so irresponsible of the people that told you that it's it's ignorance and it's irresponsible and especially with what has been happening in the field of epigenetics now there's so much that they know that and one of the main things we won't get off on a tangent here but but to this to the point of genetics one of the main things that is known now and scientifically proven it's just it's not it's not woo woo science it's it's science science is that um we actually control our genes and we are not at the mercy of our genes and that our genes respond to our environment, which is our thoughts and our lifestyle. So, you know, and I think the more people know that and understand that, the more they can feel empowered. Like, well, I don't have to be, I'm not a victim of my genetic makeup just because everybody in my family, you know, fell victim to, you know, whatever. That doesn't mean that you have to, you actually can have almost 100% control over most of those things. And don't take my word for it. There are plenty of wonderful um, scientists and doctors out there now that have all kinds of amazing information about that. But but anyway, so that was a really, really good point to bring up. Are you familiar with that too, Jay? Is that something that you've had to deal with?
0: And in, in terms of the permanence or the or, or other misconceptions?
1: Well, let's say both, both. Did I mean, were you told that this was just something that, you know, was going to be a lifelong thing for you? And yeah, what other misconceptions, if there are any that you'd like to toss in there?
0: Well, sure. I mean, I, I think that it's very rare. In fact, I've never heard of it, of someone getting a diagnosis of an issue of mental health and there being a parameter or, or a time limit, I should say, on it. Uh, I was told I had bipolar disorder, Um, you know, there was no sort of and we can fix this, it was always you can manage it. And so uh, I think that is something that is still developing in terms of we know that some of these um, issues of mental health come and go. I mean, there is a form of bipolar disorder that is sort of uh, lapsing and remitting. But there is not yet a a understanding of if there can be quote unquote a cure for a lot of these issues, and so I, I do think that that uh, is a great point from Amanda is that if if you lead into these conversations with uh, a permanence, um, you know it's it's a way to alienate the person you're working with instead of. Now that being said, if there isn't a way you you know if there isn't an end in sight, you don't want to give the person false hope, but, uh, this ironclad idea that there can never be an end, uh, is something that is now being pushed back on.
1: Good. Yeah, definitely. What about, um, let's, let's share maybe some, some tips for helping people that, feel like they have got some some issues and some challenges that they're just not able to deal with on their own. And maybe they're thinking, gosh, I could probably use some help. I don't know. I don't want to. But but in their gut, maybe they know they should. So uh, let's start with you, Jay. Do you have some, maybe some, some tips or some advice for people that are in that mental place?
0: Well, I would say that number one, first and foremost, most important, reach out don't just, uh, sit with it. Um, I, I, and I know Amanda has the, the same experience that when we were going through our worst, we both felt very alone and, uh, it, it leads to an alienation and to uh, feeling that, uh, for too many people that suicide is the only option. And it, that doesn't have to be the case. I, wish I could go back and reach out to some of my closer friends and say, I'm really struggling. And that's the thing that I do now. I, I have people in my life that I love very much, including my wonderful and supportive wife who, if things are, are, are if I'm struggling, if things are rough, I tell them and, and have those honest conversations And it. It's just so much easier to manage. So that's uh, definitely the most important is do not suffer in silence. There's always someone else uh, in your life who will understand when in reality, you know, even by conservative estimates, they believe that one in five people is struggling or has recently struggled with an issue of mental health. Uh, we all know more than five people. And so the odds of you knowing somebody who is either struggling at the moment or has recently been struggling with an issue of mental health is very, very strong.
1: Yeah. Amanda, do you have any tips? And uh, you know what? What have you done? I mean, you've you've done a lot of work on your own with your lifestyle, um, health, and wellness. What have you done to try to to really turn your, things around for yourself? That you could you know tell others to try.
2: The first thing I really knew I had to get in order was my nutrition because I knew growing up the side effects of eating too much sugar, the side effects of eating certain things or drinking alcohol or, you know, all, all these different things. And I went to school for this. You know, because I, I, I met you back then when, when I was in school. I yeah. went to school for this. Or holistic nutrition, whatnot, and still didn't really make the connection between, uh, you know, the brain and the, my mental health and what I was putting in my mouth. And I think that was one of the most powerful changes I made that really kind of kick started uh, my, my healing was just making sure that I wasn't. At the very least, I wasn't making it worse you know, because I'm not saying that foods are going to cause mental health problems, but they're certainly not going to help you manage or treat them. So really getting a grasp on what was good for my body and giving my brain a fighting chance um, was really Mm -hmm. my first step. And then my other bit of advice is building a happiness bank to make room for the really bad days because for me... It seems like, especially at the time, I was in that place where I was depressed constantly, and I just allowed myself to just wallow in it. I didn't really do much to to build my happiness when I did feel good, like on the, on days where I did feel okay. I didn't really do much to to really nurture that. that. And now I've learned that if I take time to nurture when I do feel even a little good, maybe I'm not feeling great, but if I'm feeling good, to nurture those feelings and build on those so that when I am feeling rock bottom crap depressed, because I mean, we all have bad days. No matter how, where we are on our journeys, everybody's gonna have a crap day. And sure. i I found that when I build this happiness bank and I do things that make me feel good, when I get to that rock bottom depression, I can kind of look and say you know what I was feeling good yesterday I know I'm gonna get there again now I know that I'll get back to that good feeling I know I'll have more good feelings it becomes less of an all-encompassing holy crap my life is awful everything's terrible and I'm dying sort of feeling it feels less like the sky is falling because I can look back and see where I was and where I can get back to if that makes sense
1: okay yeah that's really interesting so build a happiness bank and so it's basically like you're, you're filling up, filling up a safety deposit box, so to speak, with all of this good stuff that you can go back and tap into when you're feeling a little lower depleted. Do I understand? Yeah. That
2: right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good description of it. Cause it just, it, it tends to offset it for me. I noticed it really offset it more. And just really having room in your heart for those bad days. There are days still, of course, where I, something will trigger me and I'll start, you know, having a craving or I'll have a little bit of anxiety and knowing now that I can get through it, knowing instinctively that I am going to get to the other side of it just because I kind of built that on other days, um, is, is really made a huge difference
1: for me. Yeah. That's really important. Um, Uh, really good tips here. And I, and I really love that one because I think it's one that could easily be overlooked, building a happiness bank, which is just a beautiful way to put it. But that is asking people to really take notice of when they have, even if it's just the briefest moments or a short period of time, when they have that, that phase or that time of feeling any measure of good, whether it's really good or just a little bit good, or just at peace, but you know something that would be considered a positive emotion, and and really um, cementing that in your head and really remembering it, because then what that does when you are feeling in a low spot is you could think back to that and you tell yourself, "I am capable of." feeling a different way. I'm capable of changing my state. And that's really important because I think a lot of people are, um, are victims of their emotions and they're victims of other people's emotions. And they let, they let that change their own state and and we don't have to. And with practice, and this is a way of practicing that it's just another tool in your toolbox to help you, um, try to keep yourself from getting too low or just to remind yourself that, you know, maybe I'm low now, but it's going to pass. I, I have the ability and the capability of changing my state to something that feels better for me. So I love that you said that. That's really good. Um, you mentioned a minute ago to triggers. Let's just touch on that for a second. Um, that's a big thing, especially, um, especially the last few, gosh, I mean, I never heard the word trigger so much outside of being at the (laughs) shooting range than I have in the last 10 years. Um, (laughs) So I I know we don't want to dwell on this too much, but because it is such a big thing and because we have a society, it seems, of people that are so easily triggered by everybody else's opinions and behaviors now, um, how does that connect or relate to when you are – being really challenged or suffering from some mental health issues. Um, Jay, do you want to take a crack at that first?
0: Sure. Well, Laura, I think you make a great point about people being uh, triggered to use that that word as a verb, uh-huh. but there's also on, on conversely on the other side is uh, we are seeing sort of a, a loss of empathy on a wider scale to the point where while it is true that there are more people being triggered there are also more people intentionally trying to trigger people yeah. and it can be really it can be very difficult if you are predisposed to something like anxiety or depression to to exist in a world where so many people on social media exist it seems only to try to challenge you there's no conversation what they're looking for is not education they're looking for, for a, a chance to, yeah. yeah. And, and in reality, it's it's not even a fight that they want. It's to hurt someone else. And so it, it's, I, I mean, I think those two things go hand in hand. It, and there's an old saying that says, hurt people, hurt people. And, you know, these this rise of what we call the troll is a very new or sort of, you know, um, uh, a new iteration of something that has been around for a long time. And that's people who get their pleasure through bullying, through uh, expelling the hate and the, the, the hurt that they have in a way that is uh, instead of healthy and dealing with that pain is only meant to spread it and to make, make other people feel it as awful as they do.
1: Yeah, th- no that is a hugely good point. There's two sides to that. So you're really right to point that out. Um I love that <laughs> it's it, 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 and the same on the same topic there are people um even if they're not necessarily out to to hurt people, but there are still people that are out that are just addicted to drama and this is a way of stirring the pot. And there are people that just love drama and they don't know what to do with themselves when there's not drama going on. So, um, so pushing people's buttons, um, you know, pulling triggers uh, is definitely something that falls into the category of that kind of mindset too, I think. Um, yeah, it does. It works both ways. And I, I think, uh, we talked a lot about that from, from the standpoint of people that are, that are pulling um, the triggers. Amanda, do you have a a take on that? Um, And maybe from both standpoints or from people that are maybe a little too trigger sensitive?
2: Absolutely. There are some people that will find any reason whatsoever to get offended. And at the end of the day, you know what happens when you get offended? Absolutely nothing. That's one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time. Nothing really happens when you get offended. But at the same time for people like us who really struggle with, Certain imagery, I, I get really um, distressed by certain imagery or certain um, certain scenes in movies. I don't expect those movies to not have those scenes. I just kind of would like, in, in the beginning, you know, where it's this this film might contain images of drugs, violence, sexual assault, etc. That way, you know, these people aren't. Required to censor themselves to pander to my struggles, but at the same time I'm my my like needs are being met so that you know I know what I'm getting into because I don't want to go into a movie that I think is going to be a romance comedy And it turns out to be some torture film, you know I I feel like I have the right to know what I'm being um, subjected to with that being said as far as people in their whole trolling drama online I think the most important lesson I learned as an adult, this is literally one of my hugest lessons as an adult, is you will never find anything of value in a comment section. Nowhere. No, never on social media, never on YouTube. You're never going to find the enlightenment you're looking for or the peace and happiness you're looking for in a comment section. You're going to find a bunch of trolls that want to argue you on every single point you you have or believe in. And I, I guess it comes come to a point, there was a time I used to volunteer as a Planned Parenthood escort, so I'd walk women um, from their cars inside and I loved getting under the skin of the of the protesters there just because I was so insecure with myself at the time that mm-hmm. I wanted to defend my beliefs. I wanted every opportunity to defend my my beliefs mm-hmm. and my stances. And I feel that to an extent people that are like that are just very insecure. They they don't know mm-hmm. they haven't taken time to learn, as Jay was saying, their opponents, feelings or emotions or needs or any of that. They're just out there spewing venom and spewing hatred because they've attached to some crusade, some, you know, holy crusade. And Mm -hmm. I I, I believe most of them want, I know that I wanted to make a difference. You know, I wanted to do something positive, but I also kind of got drug into that need for drama at the time I was young and I was in this (laughs) environment where there was a lot of drama and a lot of... um, back and forth, bullets being thrown, and a part of me kind of enjoyed it at the time. But now, having grown up, yeah, I I just realized that you can't really learn and grow from interacting with people that aren't really wanting to interact with you at all. They're not wanting to learn anything, as Jay said. They're not wanting to be enlightened or to have a different viewpoint. They're wanting to... Fight. They're wanting to argue. They're wanting to drill down their own viewpoints, and you're not really ever going to change their mind. I mean, have either of you? Have either of you ever once on a Facebook comment said something and had the other person say, "Gee golly whiz, I just changed all of my beliefs
1: right here and now"? (laughs) No, I have not had that experience. If you, Jay.
0: Uh, I mean, I've had some very positive uh, social media interactions, but it's all about how you use it. And I think that the the best point Amanda made there was you're not going to find anything positive in the comment section. That's
1: pretty much
0: Internet 101 at this point.
1: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I think think a big, um, you know, a a point that I want to maybe leave that particular subject with is that even... Bullying, perpetual bullying, somebody that's sort of a professional <laughs> bully or addicted to forms of bullying, that's its own form of mental illness. Um, it is. you know, there's something else there's right. There's something else going on there that is causing that person to have the need to feel that they need to do that. So on that note, um, before uh, before we start to wind down, I I noticed in the beginning that um, you each use a different a different word um, when describing sort of the state you're in now. Um, Jay says, you like to say that I'm in recovery, which is different from being sober. And I heard, Amanda, you refer to yourself as being clean. So I think it'd be interesting um, to just share with the listeners your definitions of those and and why that works for you. Jay, do you want to start?
0: Sure. So this is one that I think is, uh, well, I'll say this, the, the act of leaving or moving beyond, um, currently struggling with addiction is a very personal thing. And my, um, sort of resting point is the person who is in recovery or is in that position can call themselves whatever they would like. I personally use the word in recovery because I feel it is the most all encompassing. And I say that I am very cognizant to point out that I am not sober. Um, sober is a word with a lot of connotation these days, depending on which group you subscribe to. Uh, when I first entered recovery, I was completely stone cold sober for about three years. And that is beyond even by AA's definition. Um, and, 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 that meant I didn't, um, I didn't drink coffee. I didn't, I've never smoked cigarettes. Both of those things are allowed in AA even when you are quote unquote sober. So for me, when I say in recovery, it is a signal that I am no longer actively struggling. I don't use the word clean as, as Amanda and I have talked about before, because there is a dirty connotation to the word clean. It is, Um, you know, basically implying that the person in active use is dirty. Obviously that is the opposite of clean. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, Amanda is in recovery. She can call herself whatever she wants. And I understand she and I have had a great discussion about this. I understand where she's coming from. I believe that that is her choice being in recovery, but if for people outside of the community, It's not a word you should use. Um, It's not okay to say, well, you know, my friend is in recovery or clean. And he says, that's fine. Your friend can say whatever he wants. If you haven't gone through this struggle, just be respectful. And I think that goes back to our earlier point. If you know that, if you don't know that, hey, that's okay. Let's talk about it. If you know that and you're doing it anyway, there's something deeper going on there. And I don't think it's it's exactly the most respectful thing in the world.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you, Amanda?
2: You know, I really like what Jay said about really respecting what other people want. I tend to to really subscribe to that across all levels. If somebody, say, if somebody's name is William and they want to be called Bill, I'm going to call them Bill. Even if their name is William and I know them as William, I'm going to call them what they want to be called and have, you know, the respect for them. Or uh, we have the, the conversation now with pronouns. You know, if somebody... Identifies as a woman, but I see them as a man. I'm going to call them by the pronoun that they choose and I have that same belief as far as um, the The recovery movement uh, goes I have the same belief if somebody does not want to be called clean I absolutely respect that for me. I don't like to say in recovery because that implies that I still have this affliction and I mean while that can be argued on a a Medical level whether or not I still have the affliction just by I guess law of attraction standards I don't want to label myself as Being in recovery because I don't want to label myself as still having this problem because I feel like in my mind That gives me excuses to say well. I still have this problem So if I just relapse a little if I go back to this I feel like it almost gives me an excuse to go back to that Mm -hmm. um, To those actions and to that behavior, and I don't want that I like to say that I'm clean because I want to say that that is part of my past. And with that being said, the word clean specifically to me, yes, like the, the opposite is dirty and that can have some negative connotations and I don't want to say that about other people per se, but when I say it about myself, I don't want to look back on that time when I was in active addiction when I was using and think of myself as a clean or a good person I wasn't I wasn't a good person and I I might be in the minority here and believing this in the movement but I did feel dirty and I do look I I don't want to look back on myself and see myself in that time as pretty and you know um, I I don't really know the right word to use for it but I don't want to look back and see myself in a good light so when I Use that word to define myself now. It's not to shame myself per se, but just so I don't get stuck in that narrative of well, I was still a good person because I really wasn't. I did not like who I was, and I never want to be that person again.
1: Um, Got it. Yeah. And I remember,
2: yeah. I I remember part. I think of the things that had really been so. I almost want to say alluring to me was there was a lot of media when I was growing up that kind of glamorized uh, cocaine, especially shows like Nipsock. I remember that was really big when I was a teenager and those mm-hmm. who used cocaine, it was very glamorous. It was, it was a very glamorous thing to do. It was something that the high society types of the models did, you know? So I, to, to undo that thought and that, Um, image in my mind, I kind of really do have to define that part of my life as being dirty, as being an ugly thing so that I don't fall back into that same trap.
1: I understand. It's almost like you could say you, you're, you're wiping the slate clean. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's just very interesting. And I think the main point that there is that you, you know, each, each person has to find, um, a definition that, feels right and feels true for them. Um, but just
2: being respectful when someone else, if someone else tells you, Hey, I'd really like it if you'd call me this, just being respectful and mindful of that is super important. That's the bottom line.
1: Yeah, very, very much so. Um, so let's, um, give people maybe just a few more bits of maybe some advice, um, before, before we let them go. Um, Jay, mental hygiene, do you want to give us, because that would be something that we want to um, maybe help people to understand that might help them um, if they are, right, kind of struggling or feel like they're on the brink of <laughs> of maybe doing something or going down a path they, sh- they know they shouldn't. Let's talk a little bit about what that is, define it, and, and <clears throat> how do we maintain good mental hygiene?
0: Well, there's a lot that you can do every day to practice good mental health and it does take practice this is something that we're not taught i was forced to learn this going through the worst period of my life and i'm lucky now that i get to impart some of that wisdom on other people so there there are a lot of tips and tricks that i coach to my clients but the sort of big three that i recommend to every single person start your day with positive affirmations it just puts you in the right direction. And um, when the hits do come throughout the day, you're you're already headed in the opposite direction. So it keeps you from barreling farther down. Number two, check in with yourself every day. For me, that means practicing mindfulness in whatever way that I choose to do so that day. It helps bring things that are possibly below the surface or maybe things in the back of your mind up to the forefront and allows you to to deal with it. So that's number, Something Amanda sort of touched on earlier, but track your feelings every day. And it's helpful because if you truly feel, oh, things are just horrible, then you can go back and look at this record and show that, okay, you know, it really is only the last three or four days that I've been feeling this way. And it's also a chance for mindfulness as well. If I end the day and I think back on my day, and it's not just a, how am I feeling now? It's a, how was my day? It's a chance to get in touch with yourself once again and end the day on a positive note. So definitely those three and for other tips and tricks, you know, reach out to me and we'll, we'll, we'll chat.
1: Perfect. I love that. Those are really, really good tips. Um, And I, Checking in with yourself throughout the day is really, really smart because it's easy for things to get away with us. I think tracking your feelings is all is good for the reasons you said. So you can see, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Maybe it's been a couple of days, or vice versa. Uh, wow, this has been going on uh, for you know a couple weeks. Maybe it's time to really take stock of what's going on here and, and a deeper look. So I think those are brilliant. Starting your day with positive affirmations, so or any kind of. Um, Positive, whether it's you know affirmations or prayer or or meditating, whichever or any of those, all of them. Sometimes I do them all, so it's a great <laughs> way to start your day. It's very foundational, and it is a practice. And I think the more that people um, do those things, even if they feel a little awkward at first, but pretty soon you'll find if you keep it up. Um, you will start to feel the difference. You will start to notice and you'll start to feel weird when you don't do it. You'll, you'll miss it. It really does um, have an impact. Amanda, do you want to add anything to those, um, to the mental hygiene uh, tips that Jay just gave us?
2: I love it because I do gratitude first thing in the morning and last thing before I go to bed. It's become part of my life. I've been practicing it for over a year now and it's so, so, so powerful to really set the tone for the day, so I love that. Thank you, Jay, for for telling everyone about that. My big one is, I said it before, but just make sure that you're giving your body a fighting chance. Make sure that you're getting a balance of nutrients um, that you're really. Eating healthy foods because that does affect the brain. That is going to affect the brain, and there are nutrient deficiencies that can affect mental health. There's a free download over on my website that gives the top ten where you can find them all. Because it's so important to make sure that we're balancing those nutrients and that we're getting what our body needs. It's so easy to just, you know, grab whatever's quick, especially when we're anxious or, or depressed, grabbing whatever's the, the nearest uh, food and just shoveling it in our mouth to try to, you know, get through. But Utilizing that as part of your treatment and and what you're eating, what you're drinking, make sure that you're getting enough sleep. That's huge for me. Um, If I don't get sleep, I will feel myself starting to slide back into um, patterns of anxiety or just feeling really generally down. So I, I know it seems simple, but really just making sure that you're balancing your nutrition, that you're staying active, and that doesn't have to mean, people are always saying you need to work out, you need to do this, you need to do that there's no specific workout you have to do, but just get off your butt. Even if it means doing some flights on the stairs. I mean, since COVID started and I haven't been able to go to the gym, I start running up yeah. and down the stairs or I'll go for a bike ride or go rollerblading. Just do something, no matter what it is that's passionate uh, for yeah. you. Get those get those chemicals going. You want to have those endorphins because Elwood was right. You know, exercise releases endorphins. Endorphins make you happy and happy people just don't go killing their husbands.
1: Exactly.
2: <laughs> so the, the, the important <laughs> connection there is that that does affect your mental health. And if you're yeah. staying active, if you're giving your body those feel-good uh, chemicals and hormones, that can make a really, really uh, immense difference in how you're mm-hmm. handling your stress and your, yeah. uh, any mental health things that might come up.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I love this because we've got um, the first points are um, a little bit more about the, the mental aspect, you know, what you can do um, as far as mindset goes, and then just um, the habit of tracking feelings. And then the next points that you gave Amanda are things that are more physical, the nutrition, the sleep, staying active. And they all that 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 is such a magic formula with all of those things put together you really give yourself the best opportunity to thrive mentally and physically and emotionally when you do all of those things and you can start to make them part of your your daily practice, and pretty soon it's just part of your lifestyle. It's not anything you have to think about. So I love those tips, and um, I think they're they're wonderful. Uh, before I let you guys go, is there? I mean, I know just for the listeners, you know, we uh, were obviously focused a lot more on the addiction aspect of of mental health, um, but you know, there are so many other categories um, that that we were not able to touch on today. Um, you know, there's anxiety disorders and behavioral disorders and developmental disorders. There's eating disorders, (laughs) there's mood disorders, personality disorders, there's sleep disorders. I mean, the list goes on. So, um, I just want everybody to know that, um, you know, this was kind of our focus today because this has been the experience of Jay and Amanda, but but there is a lot more information on um, you know online, obviously. everyone knows if they if they want to find more info, you don't have to look far. Um, what um, what are some parting thoughts if you have any that you didn't get to talk about yet um, that you would like to share before we let people know where they can find. you? Jay, do you want to start? Is there anything else you want to share?
0: Well, first off, I want to say most importantly, thank you so much for this opportunity, Laurie. It's been wonderful and getting to know both of you has been a a treat for me and I, I really, really appreciate it. Amanda, you know, it seems like we keep crossing paths, so hopefully when this is all over, maybe we'll find each other at a conference sometime where we can actually meet in person. Um, I would say that, you know, the final point is, is I I just basically I've made these points already, but they both need to be stressed again and again, please, please reach out to someone you love, reach out to me during this, this, uh, COVID experience. I've had so many people reach out just saying, I need someone to talk to. And it is my absolute pleasure to be there for people. We are going through something unprecedented. People are feeling emotions they've never felt before you are not alone you do not need to sit with these feelings and suffer please reach out that's number one and two talk about these issues these there's no reason that we should hide these are not um uh, there's something wrong with you if you are struggling with issues of addiction or mental health so please don't be afraid don't let someone tell you that you should keep this secret because there's nothing wrong with you so Please show empathy to people you know who are struggling and uh, together we can help end the crisis of addiction and mental health that we're seeing in our country.
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Jay. What about you, Amanda? Jay, I don't think we're just going to see each other at a
2: conference at some point. We're going to be having our own TED Talks here soon. So I, I know that you and I have a lot more uh, together in the future. And uh, I, I'm on the same page, Lori. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to finally come on here and be able to talk with you and share um, all these insights with your listeners, uh, and I, I just appreciate so much the content that you create and how you present it in such a unique and energetic way. It's such a breath of fresh air, and I'm I'm so excited to see where all of us um, have to go, moving on from here, whether together or in our own um, in our own worlds. But for me during this time i've just been telling people give yourself a break you know there there's a lot going on we're all feeling the pressure of it we're all feeling stressed we might be feeling a little bit more anxiety we might be having flare ups of of you know disorders that we thought we had gotten rid of and that's okay because you know, there's a global pandemic going on outside the window right now and everyone's lives are turned upside down and it's okay if you don't get 100% of your of your goal list done for the day. It's okay if the only thing you did today was put pants on and ate <laughs> some food and fed your kid. That's A-okay as long as that doesn't become the long-term pattern. It is A-okay to give yourself a break, but like Jay said, really make sure that you're reaching out and even if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to someone close to you for whatever reason you can always reach out to myself or Lori or Jay or you can always you know find a, a group of some kind there's a lot of Facebook support groups or for me I actually really enjoyed connecting with other Lincoln Park fans because that helped me realize that I wasn't alone in my grief that other people were also grieving this person that we looked up to just finding some group of people be it through a church or through you know a a, a Facebook group for your favorite band or, you know, a a Facebook group or a meetup for people that that struggle with anxiety and stuff. There's so many options nowadays that, you know, even with this social distancing, it's not really distancing, we're physically distancing, we're not socially distancing. I'm sitting here having a conversation with you guys right now. There's always ways to connect. Um, And as for people that know someone that uh, might be struggling, just know, don't take things personally. Um, make sure to communicate your boundaries, but if somebody's feeling kind of grouchy, especially right now, if somebody seems more emotional or if they seem a little bit more grouchy or something, you know, just make sure that you're empathetic like we talked about and that you're loving and kind toward them. If you don't know what else to do, I always say just be kind. Even if you don't have the solution, being kind is better than saying something completely um, off color and wrong. So yeah. just really take time to, as, as Jay said, check in with yourself right now and be honest and give yourself a break um, and reach out if you need to. But we, we, we yeah. are. I know it's the cliche right now to say that we're all really in this together, but that's how it's been all along. We've always been in this together. You know, that's not some new fun thing just because COVID came along. We've always been in this together. There's 7 billion people on the planet. We have no choice right. but to get through it together
1: yeah, well, good point. well said. Um, yes, that's I love leaving on the note of of don't be insensitive. be kind. that's that's beautiful. Um, so thank you both for the very generous compliments. and thank you both for uh, spending, a, actually quite a bit of time today. I really, really appreciate it. So quickly, I'm going to put the, uh, your websites in the show notes so that people can find you there. But also if you each want to just say real quickly, um, where the best places for people to find you, um, find out more about you and how to connect with you. Jay, do you want to start?
0: Definitely. So number one, check out my website, com. That's J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. You can find me at The Next Shiftman on Instagram, Jay Shiftman on Facebook and LinkedIn, at JB Shiftman on Twitter. And my podcast is the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I'm always looking for awesome people in the world of mental health and addiction to talk to for future episodes, to reach out. And, uh, you know, you just may find yourself on the podcast.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. How about you, Amanda?
2: Yep, I am over at www.amandawebsterhealth.com. I'm also on Instagram at Amanda Webster Health. I have a brand new sprouting YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Amanda Webster Health. And if you sign up for my newsletter on my website, you also get an invitation to my private Facebook group, uh, The Pack. I've always felt very close to wolves, so all the people close to me are my cubs. Um, that's, That's always kind of been my thing. So now I can expand my pack to other people, and I just post a lot of... YOU KNOW, WORKOUT VIDEOS, POSITIVITY AND STUFF THERE, REFLECTIONS FOR PEOPLE DURING THIS TIME TO HELP THEM GET THROUGH NOT ONLY THIS um, SITUATION, BUT REALLY BOOST THEIR HAPPINESS BEYOND THAT AND CONTINUE continue GROWING AND CONTINUE EVOLVING uh, PAST THE TIMES OF COVID. SO I'M REALLY LOOKING FORWARD TO CONNECTING TO A WHOLE NEW GROUP OF PEOPLE DURING THIS TIME.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for all of that. I will, like I said, make sure that websites and such are in the show notes. And once again, Jay and Amanda, you have been amazing. And I I applaud you for the work you've done and for how you are being of service to others now. Uh, Thank you for being so um, transparent and sharing your amazing stories. Um, We will be in touch soon. And uh, have a wonderful day. We all find ourselves in places from time to time where we are challenged beyond measure and our coping skills are just not able to manage the overwhelming emotions and confusions that can take hold. There is no shame in reaching out for help if you find yourself going down a path that you know in your heart and your gut, and we always know, is harming you or leading you further into despair or even to addiction and away from health and wellness. Uh, So there's a lot of help out there. Um, If this is you or somebody that you care about, I encourage you to reach out to Jay or Amanda uh, or myself. Uh, Their websites will be in the show notes as I stated. And uh, of course you can find a lot of very good resources and information on the mentalhealth.org website. Oh, that was good. Really deep stuff. So please remember to share this episode with all of those that you care about so that they can find out how to make some healthy shifts happen in their lives too. Until next week, stay feisty, my friends. Stay healthy and go make some epic shift happen in your life. That goes for you too, Gary Vee. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.